From Trinity College, this is Hidden Literacies. Welcome to Hidden Literacies, the podcast. On this show, we'll hear from contributors to the Hidden Literacies anthology on the sources they've selected, how they became hidden, the lessons we can learn from them, and what they reveal about the stakes of each contributor's scholarship. My name is Mary Mahoney, and I'm the Digital Scholarship Coordinator at Trinity College. On this episode, it's my privilege to bring you a conversation with contributor Matt Cohen. Matt Cohen teaches English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and is a faculty fellow at the Center for Digital Research in the Humanities there. He's the author or editor of five books, including most recently Whitman's Drift, Imagining Literary Distribution. Cohen is also a contributing editor at the Walt Whitman Archive and co-editor with Stephanie Browner and Kenneth Price of the Charles Chestnut Digital Archive. To begin, I asked Matt to describe the text he's contributing to Hidden Literacies. The text that I'm working on is a letter from John Newton Johnson who was an Alabama cotton farmer, to Walt Whitman, the famous American poet and writer, from the 3rd of April, 1875. So during the uh, the post-Civil War period, uh, after Reconstruction had been rolling, and it's a four-page letter, and it's like many pieces of correspondence from the time, it's kind of soiled a little bit, it's written in pencil, so it's kind of hard to read. And Whitman obviously spilled something on it at some point and carried it around with him in his bag or something, his pocket, and it got folded up and rubbed a little bit. But you can still see some of of what the letter says. Matt described what led him to this text. So this letter is currently held at the Library of Congress. They have a very large collection of Whitman documents. And it's among a a substantial body of correspondence that they have there in their manuscripts division. It was found a long time ago by Whitman scholars who, as near as I can tell, use uh, all means, legal and illegal, to try to track down documents that Whitman uh, wrote. And it was called to my attention by one of the project managers at the Walt Whitman Archive, uh, for which I am a, I'm a contributing editor. So uh, I was at the time writing a book um, called Whitman's Drift, Imagining Literary Distribution. I was interested in distribution. I was interested in how Whitman's works actually got around. We make a lot of literary critical judgments about texts without actually knowing whether anyone read them or not. And so I thought, well, let's, let's, let's find out. Um, and what I wanted to know also was what did Whitman think about his distribution? Did it change the way he wrote? So here you're recording a podcast, for example, right? That's a, a very specific distribution method. Uh, and it comes with certain limitations. You don't get to see my beautiful face. Um, and uh, it comes with certain advantages. It's highly portable. Uh, You can download it, listen to it anywhere with modern electronic devices. And you can also do a range of any range of audio formats innovated by by radio. You can you can do one of the things that Whitman did was he took advantage of the medium to convey things against its grain. So I thought, all right, well, what all what were all the media that he used to transmit himself, as he might put it? And in what cases did he not 
get distributed. So where were the like dark spots in the Whitman sky, you know? So it had always been said that in the South of the United States, because Whitman was such radical in terms of religious belief, because he had taken an an anti-slavery stance in his early poetry uh, and for various other reasons, he was a Yankee, um, he hadn't been read in the South. And I'm from the South, and I was like, "I I don't think that's true. So I started looking for him. Well, the folks who were doing the correspondence uh, at some point after probably hearing me pining away about a lack of evidence said, well, you got you to gotta look at these letters from this guy in Alabama because he loved Whitman and there's 30 letters and that's a lot. So I went and started reading through them and I came across this one and I really didn't know what to do. I, I mean, it's a, it's a real mess. As Matt describes, this letter has a strange form. So this letter is, it is written in dialect, which, which is already unusual. The whole letter um, is written from the standpoint of John Newton Johnson's newborn son, um, who's about maybe eight months old at the point at which this letter is written. He was born in 1874, and this is early in 1875 that he's writing to Whitman. And Newton Johnson has decided to name his son after Walt Whitman. Um, I don't know how many Southern, rural, you know, former slaveholders' babies were named after Walt Whitman, but I'm guessing not many. And so this is the, the father of this child pretending to be this child, speaking in a kind of Southern baby dialect to announce to the famous poet that he has named, he's been named after him. That is, that's the trope of the letter. It's it's hard to read because it's in a dialect that is crossed over or that, that, that is a mix of like baby talk, you know, where just letters are left off, you know, uh, things, it'll for little, that kind of thing, uh, ood for good and sort of Southern dialect. And it's just the strangest damn thing. What could a man writing as his infant son have to say in baby talk? Matt offers us a summary. It wouldn't be so weird if it hadn't been written to Walt Whitman, the poet of democracy, the poet of freedom, the poet of equality, the poet of masters and the poet of slaves, as he says, the poet of the body and the poet of the soul. Because it's in effect a it's a kind of love letter in a weird way. Obviously, it's a letter showing a kind of homage to Whitman. I mean, you know, naming your kid after somebody is significant. It starts by saying, you know, my dad was so mean to me, he didn't give me a name for months and months. He didn't want to name me after anybody who was alive because living people tend to do bad things at some point and then you regret that you, you know, that you named your child after them. And But dad says you won't do any bad things because you're such a good writer and uh, such a good speaker that, that you couldn't possibly do bad things. So there's already a little pressure there, right? Like, no pressure, don't be an asshole and make my naming a tragic episode. And it's another tragic episode in Southern history. But then he goes on and, you know, that's kind of funny and playful. But then he goes on to say, you know, the only thing my dad's worried about is that you were an abolitionist and we don't like abolitionists down here. And dad says, well, maybe you were just writing abolitionist poetry for the money. You know, maybe it was just about making some change. And you actually, you know, didn't feel that way. So, so if that's true, Walt, you should come down here and live with me and we will get fiddles and we will play Dixie and we will go all across the South and we will uh, route out all the abolitionists and we'll be the new Ku Klux Klan. So things get serious very fast. 
uh, and very unpleasant. How strange was this kind of behavior from women fans? Now, on the one hand, this is not that unusual in the sense that Whitman got fan mail all the time. And especially from the 1870s on, he's getting mail from all over the world with people expressing their love to him, people saying, come and live with me. You know, Anne Gilchrist, who is a wealthy English woman, has this kind of relationship with him. She packs up her family and moves them over to, you know, to America to, to live near Whitman. I mean, she was imagining they could get married, perhaps, you know, live together. So it's not uncommon for people to have that kind of fantasy about Whitman, but there's, there's nothing like this. I mean, there's nobody that says, come down and join the Ku Klux Klan. It's difficult to know much about this singular fan, except for what we know from surviving letters Johnson sent to Whitman. So one thing worth remembering about that imbalance in our historical knowledge about about the past, about figures like Johnson, is that he led, uh, in certain ways, a difficult life, and the archives that folks like Johnson produce are, are precarious. He he reminds Whitman often in the letters that it, he has to travel 15 miles in order to get or receive mail, that, that he has to go to the, to the post office in Guntersville if he wants to receive packages or anything like that. He, he doesn't have a regular rural mail service. And so that's just a little window onto uh, how difficult it was uh, to, to keep and to circulate uh, documents in the rural South at the time. There's just not a whole lot of infrastructure. Johnson's house burned down uh, in the early 20th century, and probably with it, uh, lots of copies of Leaves of Grass, but also, um, but also his, his correspondence, the, the Whitman letters back to him. So all we have to go on is the moments in the letters when, when Johnson quotes Whitman back to himself, or when he says, well, you told me in your letter this, but I tell you this. And so I think that's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sort of hollow echo that can be kind of found in them. In this letter, Johnson used Whitman's own words to, as Matt says, tweak him. The other thing about this letter that is unusual or that makes that plea that he's making unusual is his, in the conclusion of the letter, the, especially there's a, there's a use of Whitman's own poetry to try to explain why, even if he objects to these racist sentiments, these kind of violent invitations. He he should, by the logic of his own poetry, nonetheless embrace this kid, embrace this family. And that that use of Whitman's poetry woven into the letter to to kind of explain that uh, despite the partly playful but partly very serious racism of the letter that is designed to tweak him, that's designed to poke him and uh, provoke him a little bit, that notwithstanding, this is one of those things about which people feel strongly Whitman's own embrace, his own advocacy for comradeship and for brotherly love, uh, those are things that mean that he needs to read the letter in an atmosphere of or an attitude of love rather than one of rejection or rather than in one of, of uh, repulsion. We can examine which poems Johnson chose to quote back to Whitman. There are multiple cases of Johnson choosing certain passages from Whitman in his poetry, but also in his prose, actually, 
to quote back to Whitman as a justification or to kind of poke him even as he's transmitting this racist message. So one example is there are two parts where the where the child in the letter uses a phrase fap 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 by which he means flap 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 he's talking about the flag flapping in the wind and that's a reference to the song of the banner at daybreak one of whitman's poems which has a line depicting the flag flapping 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 and it's kind of like Edgar Allan Poe's bells, 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 right? Once you read it, you, there's no way not to make fun of it. But th- but there's also, uh, it's also emblematic of, of something, I think, that Johnson wants to, wants to hang on to. This is a super long poem. It's about the Civil War. So again, since that's what's on the table here, we have a Civil War veteran who's writing to Whitman, uh, trying to become friends with him across this boundary. The, the poem is, has several speakers so that there's, a, there's the poet, there's the child, and there's the father. So in a way, uh, the poem already has all those ingredients that the letters rhetorical trope uh, animates, right? It's the father in the voice of the child speaking to the poet. So it's kind of reversed in a way. What happens in the poem is that the flag calls the child to battle. So this is a, this is a sort of lamenting poem about the you know the Civil War. Uh, depriving families of their children and um, death taking them away and transforming the future of the U.S. The flag flaps. It calls the child to battle. The father says, oh, this is terrible. And uh, the poet is kind of observing this um, and, is, and is sort of thinking through uh, what kind of sacrifices have to be made in order to preserve the union. So in this case, something slightly different happens. In this case, Johnson's in a way, calling the poet to battle, right? In this case, to join the Ku Klux Klan and to fight uh, for racism through the child's voice. So he takes the coordinates of the poem and he sort of moves them around. The poem says, I burst through where I waited long, too long, deafened and blinded. My sight, my hearing and tongue are come to me. A little child taught me. I hear from above, O pennant of war, your ironical call and demand, insensate, insensate, yet I at any rate chant you, O banner. So there's a way in which that uh, magical action of the child, you know, transforming the vision of the poet is being enacted in this letter. That's being, that desire is, is sort of being channeled. So I think that, you know, that's an example of, of a way to go into it through the very specific historical moment and scene, the texts out of which this document was created. In so doing, Matt suggests, we can sit with the value of poems as sites of trauma, love, and racism simultaneously. And, uh, you know, again, voiced in the voice of the child, right? There's a kind of ludicrous quality to it almost. <laughs> the, the kid is eight months old, and not only does he like know all of Whitman's poetry, and he has a stance on the tariff question. What I kind of hope, and this is like a weird, maybe this is, I don't know, foolish hope of an optimistic English professor, but I kind of hope that in a weird way, because it worked this way for me, the ludicrousness of the letter in a way offers a sort of platform for people who may disagree about these legacies as some means of sort of saying like, look, this letter has love in it. This letter has trauma in it. This letter has racism in it. Um, to, to, to sort of be able to talk about it as all those things at once instead of kind of breaking down into binaries. This gets us to a central question. What can we make of this letter? What do we do with it? As Matt describes, it speaks to the current struggles over commemoration. Living in a time when, obviously, there are massive public struggles over commemoration, over acts of commemoration, 
whether it's the comfort woman statues in South Korea or it's Confederate monuments in the United States, people are struggling and even dying over the question of how do we remember the past? What monuments from it do we do we build? And in this case, what documents from it do we bring back and what ones do we allow to, to be silent? As Matt notes, letters like this present struggles of preserving structures of inequality and racial violence without being able to anticipate the context in which they'll be used. I think the, the challenge represented by documents like this is a, a very old one, which is to what degree do you, do you preserve the structure of, of inequality, the structures of racist violence by preserving them in the present and allowing them to be accessed in an ongoing way by audiences whose intents you can never anticipate and whose beliefs may just as much be built up by reading them as torn down by finding them in the context of the study of somebody like Walt Whitman. Context matters. We can see this in debates and document editing. For example, should canonical text be edited to strip away racist language? Matt describes a sample case involving an edited edition of Huckleberry Finn. Alan Gribben did an edition of Huckleberry Finn. Actually, he did a Twain edition in general in which he produced two sort of volumes side by side. One was a kind of historically faithful version of it, as it were, with the text preserved, you know, according to the original copy text that he chose. And then another one where he like went in and changed all the racist terminology in it. And there was a huge flap about this because folks were like, no, you know, our students need to confront, like Toni Morrison says, these are the documents of the past. We can't pretend they're not there. If we you know, try to turn away from this history. We're, we're going to take steps toward reproducing it. And other folks said, no, this is great because we don't want our kids to talk like this or think that this is normal. So sure, take all those words out. This is the kind of thing that, that the editorial world has confronted before. Similar debates affected publications of Whitman's poetry. There's an edition of Whitman's poetry in which all of the gender-specific terms have been switched to gender non-specific terms. And it reads very, very, it reads very strangely, especially in those parts of the poetry in which he's talking about men and men having sex with each other or women and women having sex with each other. And and so you're like, well, wait a minute, I do, but it's just, all, it's all they. And so you're like, I, I'm not sure why he wrote it this way. In other passages, it perfectly captures his attempt to, to move beyond gender and sex boundaries. It's a, a kind of liberating and, and inspiring thing because he was constrained by a certain kind of gendered language. And so making this decision to alter the original text with the present in mind giveth and it taketh away. And I would say the same thing for not altering it. Decisions around editing are complicated to say the least. But as Matt notes, publishing this letter is worth the risk, as he explains. It represents an opportunity to look at some elements of the past that we don't customarily get access to. We just don't have reams and reams of correspondence from poor white folks in the South, and especially in the agricultural rural South rather than the urban South. We find it's very unusual to find folks like that writing to people like Walt Whitman, whose beliefs helped uh, tear down the world that, that they built and lived in, helped motivate the Union Army. You know, Whitman was a nurse in the hospitals in the Civil War. I mean, he he was really living to an extent, um, a kind of vision uh, beyond partisanship that, that was not welcome in a lot of places in the South. And then we very seldom see the kind of sustained friendship that 
you get with somebody like Whitman and, and Johnson. Johnson, later in his life in the 1880s, he went to Philadelphia, to Camden, New Jersey, where Whitman was living, and he stayed with him for a month. And they were such a strange pair that it, it made the papers. I mean, it was a kind of long-standing friendship. Whitman sent him a copy of the last edition of Leaves of Grass from his deathbed. So I, I think there are a number of of ways of opening the box a little bit on the question of how do we begin to talk about race in this country across domains of commitment and domains of affiliation that seem so immovable across imagined histories, the coordinates of which are very difficult to agree on. And this letter, I think, offers at least one small opportunity to do that. These coordinates in the rural South are ones Matt knows well as both a scholar and a Southerner. As a Southern person who's engaged in the study of American literature, I just don't find a lot of documents like this that allow me to build historical or sort of historical genealogical bridges between the past and the present, uh, between the place where I grew up. I grew up on the same river that that Newton Johnson lived on the Tennessee River, just north of there in Kentucky. And, you know, I grew up with a lot of people who held the kinds of beliefs that Johnson did, uh, you know, 140 years later, what have you. And in order to move the needle in this conversation about race and identity in America beyond where it sits, it's not enough to say racism is immoral, racism is unethical. It's not enough even to say that it's constrained development or something like that. You have to start where people are at. You have to start with the forms of identity they feel they're losing when they let go of certain beliefs about other categories of people. And the rhetorical act is is one part of a larger demonstration of commitment and building of trust. So this kind of thing helps me think about that. I don't know if it helps me do it. I mean, I, you know, we'll see. <laughs> but, but it helps me think about how to do that kind of work. As far as my research goes, uh, more broadly. Ultimately, Matt reminds us of the slipperiness of texts, of the multiple meanings they offer and allow. This is part of my larger work on Whitman, in a sense. But in that sense, to me, it's pivotal prompt is always to remember that Quitman's amazing abilities as a writer, his infectious quality as a literary figure worldwide, are not premised on us all reading Quitman and agreeing to what he means, agreeing that, that there's a certain kind of thing that he does invariably that no other writer quite does. Letters like this are a reminder that there are a lot of different ways of reading and that those forms of reading are attached to social contingencies, historical contingencies, and economic contingencies that tr actually transform the meaning of the words on the page. And that's, that's difficult to, to embrace. It would be a lot easier if we just sort of declared our interpretations and said, no, that's what this means, or even that's what this could mean. Uh, but when we find other people doing that in the past, it's, it's a healthy reminder of how slippery text can be. In his commentary published in the Hidden Literacies Anthology, Matt expounds on the thoughts he shared here on what he terms, quote, editing as an act of political interpretation. His work gives us a way into the past that can inform the present and helps us think with history in a different way. The last line of the letter is really poignant to me. Uh, and, and it's a question that is being asked of us as readers in a way, not just of Whitman at the time. The little child says that he doesn't want presents, 
that money can buy. He says, you must give that sort to other little Whitmans, but you must give big love to little secesh mans. And, you know, that moment is, that is, that is a very, very challenging invitation from the past, uh, I would say. It was a challenging invitation to Whitman coming from a, from a Southern kid that had been named after him, whose daddy was fighting, you know, for the other side. But it's also a challenge across the boundaries of history to us, I think. This letter, as a, quote, challenging invitation from the past, offers what Matt terms in his commentary, quote, a context in which the complexity of Johnson's acts of reading Whitman and of authoring this letter can be appreciated even as the racism which informs both acts is highlighted. And perhaps, too, the very outlandishness of the letter's trope might make it possible to talk about its blend of racism, trauma, and love without evoking the binaries of either nostalgic piety or condemnatory erasure, end quote. Matt Cohen is a professor of English at the University of Nebraska. Listeners can get more information on his research by checking out his publications, including his most recent, 2017's Whitman's Drift, Imagining Literary Distribution. Hidden Literacies is a production of Trinity College, edited by Hilary Wiss and Christopher Hager, with support from the English Department and Information Services, with technical support by Mary Mahoney, Joelle Thomas, and Kate Kennedy. This podcast was produced by me, Mary Mahoney, with the support and permission of the contributors to Hidden Literacies. For more information on Hidden Literacies and to explore the texts and commentaries described here, please visit www.hiddenliteracies.org.